on this episode of The Kinked Wire. Figure out your targets and then automate as much as possible, be it through automatic transfers, automate your savings, move it to a separate account that you're not going to touch and do as much of that through automation as possible. Because really when it's left up to our willpower, all of us are pretty bad at it. (laughs) And so what we want to have is good systems in place. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the new interventional radiology podcast from SIR's IR Quarterly Magazine. You can learn more at our website, sirweb.org slash kinkedwire. And this episode is brought to you by Varian. Learn more at varian.com slash is. In this episode, Kinked Wire host Warren Krakow speaks with certified financial planner Clint Gossage from CMG Financial Consulting about the unique personal financial circumstances that physicians find themselves in throughout their career. Clint, thanks a lot for being here. And I think it's more than a little ironic that we're recording this discussion on finances and financial planning for interventional radiologists on the day of the greatest stock market loss in something like the last 30 years. But I think it's a good entree into what for a lot of us as physicians and in healthcare in general is, is something we just don't really have our heads around so much, financial planning in general. Do you notice that your job or what you do is different for doctors as compared to other professionals you might work with? Oh, yeah, I definitely do. And I feel like what's unique to financial planning is really that most doctors, when they finish, they have higher debt loads than your average person. They have huge income fluctuations from one year to the next, getting to save much later in life than your average person. And the other thing is they find it much easier to borrow than your average person. And that can potentially lead to some problematic situations. There's a lot to unpack there, I think, um, as they say, and and that's good. I'd like to actually start with the debt side of things. Sure. um, Because I agree. I I know I had that situation and many, many of my colleagues do. And I think that gets into a little bit too about sort of differences in vintage of docs. You know, if you're right out of training, debt means a lot more to you than if you're halfway or three quarters of the way through your career. But what do you tell folks to do with those really large debts that they could be facing? I would say the biggest thing is don't ignore them. That's where I see the biggest amount of trouble where it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. I'm going to stick my head in the sand and one day I'll just make enough money and I'll just kind of magically go away and then wake up and realize, okay, the money, yeah, it's a lot, but after taxes and all of these new expenses that I have isn't as much as I thought that I could just like magically make the loans disappear. So I think it's worth really understanding if loan forgiveness is a potential option or if you really are in a situation where you may have to buckle down for a few years and instead focus on repayment and realize that, okay, to get out from under these loans, I have to understand that I basically have a mortgage already. And so Mm. it's probably not the best idea to be buying like another big house purchase on on top of that and owning two homes at the start of my practice. So I think it's the, the best idea is really having a plan of attack beforehand and before a person goes ahead and locks into some life changing purchases, because it's much tougher to undo that than plan it all out from the beginning correctly. So in other words, accountants, lawyers, I don't know, other professionals, you may not have to give them that advice, that specific advice to sort of hold back on their spending for a number of years, just because their debt profile is so different. Is that accurate? 
It is accurate. And, you know, one is like when you look at your average professional, like be it accountant or attorney, they're starting their practices much earlier in life, right? So it's it's in your early 20s. So that payback window is really beginning much earlier. So it's a lot easier to tackle them, start paying them back. And by the time you're in your 30s, hopefully have those paid off. Well, you know, doctors aren't like that. Your average doc is finishing their residency and fellowship in their 30s at that point and just now being able to realistically start paying back those loans and that can take often until they're in their 40s. So it's it's a much later time in life when that is actually beginning for, for most of those professionals. My colleague, Jamin Shaw, who really helped out with a lot of the planning for this, had a great line, which is live like a resident during the first several years after training, which I think is sort of what you're getting at or talking about that is something that we as physicians or IRs have to sort of be aware of. Um, And I I think that's great advice. And it it helps from so many things to really save some money the first few years out because, you know, often allows you to pay back all your student loans and really catch up on saving. And if you've already put, let's say, five years worth of savings away, it makes buying that house, you know, maybe buying a nicer car putting more money into travel that much easier because you have some money at that point that's actually compounding in the background instead of all of the money coming and having to be from your salary. So in a way, even when you're done with training, you're kind of, you know, you're not done with training. In this way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Unfortunately, we, no. We, we kind of see that clinically too. So I mean, yeah, I'm sure. I'm uh, sure. Along those lines, though, in those first few years, when you've got like a lot of things in mind, you you know, you, maybe you do want to start a family, you do want to buy a house, but, you know, understanding your advice. But what about things like saving, saving for that house, saving for an emergency fund, saving for retirement, but yet you've still got to service that debt? I'd say that's the biggest question or most frequent question that I, that I get is that... Okay. When you're finished with residency, there's a whole lot of conflicting priorities, right? You often have the debt repayment, and then you also haven't really been able to buy anything for maybe a decade or more, okay? Any, anything <laughs> of real real value. So it's like trying to catch up and, and maybe refinish your car that, that's holding on by, you know, it's, it's nuts and bolts, or right. maybe like, you know, look, looking to buy a house, right? There's a lot of different priorities. And so I, I think, first of all, you want to think taxes because you get to the point when you, when you finish and all of a sudden taxes become a big concern. So it's how do I both effectively save money and reduce taxes? And that's when those tax advantage retirement accounts become a big help. By those, I mean like your 401k, a 457b if you have it an HSA or like a backdoor Roth IRA. There's a whole lot of acronyms that that I just threw out there all together. But really the thing with them is they're all giving you some sort of tax benefits and some sort of investment benefits at the same time. And there's a limited amount of dollars you can potentially put in those in a given year. So hopefully at some point in your career, you'll you'll be at a point where you're saving much more than that and want to have as much that's tax sheltered as possible. So start with that early on on your priority list. It really helps get everything else in line. I would also say, you know, the the next thing is definitely the emergency fund. And those Mm -hmm. two should go hand in hand. And a lot of that is really done by sketching out, you know, you could call it a budget. I prefer to call it a cash flow plan of what your income is going to look like over the next year and what your major expenses are and kind of what's left. Because that really helps define, I either have this much going towards rent, car payment, maybe a mortgage. I want to put this much towards my student loans. What do I kind of have left over for everything else? And if all of that preparation 
calculations done earlier, it's a lot easier to know how much money there is left to be able to prioritize towards all of those conflicting objectives. And it's like I mentioned before, it's much more difficult to unwind all of those things if like, okay, the house is already bought and the car is already bought. And there really wasn't a lot of thought put into the student loan plan. And really, if we're looking at all of the cash flow together, I would say your average person doesn't really budget like a corporation, even me. It's not like if I'm hitting the top end of my food budget that month that I'm just not going to buy food for the rest of the week. It doesn't really work right. like that for most of us. So I think what's more important is to figure out your targets and then automate as much as possible, be it through automatic transfers, automate your savings or whatever you want to save each month, move it to a separate account that you're not going to touch and do as much of that through automation as possible. Because really, when it's left up to our willpower, all of us are pretty bad at it. <laughs> and so what, what we want to have is good systems in, in place. Those most of us follow. And if we have the right systems in place, it's going to make everything else much easier. With each sentence, there seems to be more and more complexity and more and more to unpack. And so I'm sort of of two minds. I mean, on the one hand, I think, oh, it's my money, it's my finances, I'll just handle it and deal with it. But the more I hear you talk and the more I actually you know, have sat down and thought about it myself, I feel like I have neither the understanding nor the time to deal with this myself. I've got to take care of patients. I've got to do whatever else I've got to do. If you're just a, you know, a naive interventional radiologist, how do you know who to go to or how do you know, you know you're not going to get rooked by someone? Well, that's a good question. And the um, finance industry is terrible as far as regulating themselves in, in this way. It's not like you know in medicine, yeah, you might go to one practitioner of another and they might not quite be as skilled. But at least, you know, they went to medical school and it's mm -hmm. pretty easy to tell if they went to a residency or fellowship and right. or, or a board certified or something. There's really not that equivalent in, in finance, right? And so it's very easy to think you're dealing with a reputable advisor, but what you're really dealing with is a commission salesperson, okay? okay. Uh, or someone that gets paid to ultimately sell you products. And it usually looks like a combination of whole life insurance, or they're immediately going towards trying to sell you investments that they're going to collect a fee off of. So I would say the biggest thing you want is someone that's going to be a fee only advisor. And ultimately, you want someone that has some certifications as well that prove they at least have the ability to do some sort of education on their own. Again, none of the certifications are medical school or, or a residency, right? But it at least proves that you spent some time in a book trying to learn this information. Okay. So to, at a baseline, I would say find someone that has a CFP. Okay. If they have additional credentials on top of that, even better. But, but you want someone that has an education, someone that doesn't have conflict. So it's important to understand how they're compensated. So if someone says they're fee only, do your digging and try to understand, okay, so if they're fee only, how do they get paid? Are they only paid by me? There's information you can find on every advisor that's in a pretty intense document called uh, Form ADV, but within there, it has all their disclosures, how they're paid and what those fees are. And that's something that every advisor has to have out there and something that they have to provide before you start an agreement. So it's really important to understand those pieces of it. And I definitely wouldn't just go off of word of mouth. I feel like, you know, no, no shots fired to uh, older attendings. I feel like the word of mouth happened a lot more though in that generation. And then a lot okay. of the younger attendings are doing their own due diligence, trying to go out and find advisors independently out of that, that maybe aren't just their buddy or their friend or their friend's friend.
CFP, that is that certified financial planner? It is certified financial planner. And, yes. and is that sort of akin to being, I don't know, board certified or something like that in, in medicine or? Not at all. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I wish it was. It, it means that you've spent a certain number of hours in the field and that you passed an exam. Okay. And you could say that's board certified, but it's much more difficult to be board certified than it is to be a CFP. Also good to know, because I'm sure if you're shopping around, you're going to see that CFP uh, credential as well. And it's good to understand where it actually comes from and what it means. Also, I just want to follow up with, if I find out someone really is fee-based, does that mean that I pay them for the work they do, whether I make money, lose money, whatever, they get the same fee? There's different terms out there. So you want it to actually be fee only, which which seems a little silly, okay. but Fee-based can also apply like a commission or, or something oh, like okay. that. But, so you want to say fee-only, but the problem with just even asking that, as I know from experience, I know people that have asked brokers um, or, or different brokerage firms that, that were not fee-only, and you'll have sales reps kind of off the record say they are. And, and there's not a lot to the unknowing person out there to prevent themselves from being taken in that situation. Really? Um, so I think it's really probably understanding, yes, that they're fee only, but but even more ultimately, how are they compensated? So what it should mean is that the only person that pays them is you, the client. Now, now there's a bunch of different fee models out there, but it has to be you paying the advisor for their work and that they're not making any money off of insurance commissions or for, for selling products to you. That's amazing uh, how much you have to think even to find the right person, but it's really great advice. And I think that uh, barrier scares a lot of people too, but before they right. before they jump into it, they're like, well, if I have to do this much research just to find somebody qualified, maybe I'll just kind of, again, put my head in the sand or maybe it'll just all be fine. But as we've seen from what you've been saying, that's not the right answer. You do need to do the research, but it's alarming, I guess, a little bit to, to find out that you can't necessarily take at face value everything you're told. For sure. Moving to you know different stage of your career as an IR or as a physician, and again, retirement, uh, obviously, days like the day that we're recording this, uh, people are very worried about the retirement accounts. Does your advice change on a day like today where things are very volatile in one, in one direction or the other? That's a good question. So um, my actual approach doesn't change on a day like today. We try to get our clients to understand that the market is risky and that there's risk in stocks. And it's really easy to forget it when over the past 12 years, the market's pretty much been straight up. So I, th I think there becomes this perception that the market's just kind of kind of be up most days. And, you know, maybe some years it'll be 5%, some years that'll be 10. And then it really hits people <laughs> that haven't been invested as long, how much the market can move just on a day-to-day -day basis. So if you, if you look at a lot of the statistics, the market tends to be down, you know, more than four and a half percent, two days out of the year on average. So going into it, I expect these things are going to happen. And, and I really try to communicate that early on before it happens so that my clients clients aren't caught by surprise that okay. yes, days like this do happen. And we are prepared for what's going to happen with that. Now for younger IR physicians out there, probably not as worried about it. You have time to mm -hmm. retire. And if anything, the market going down is going to be beneficial because you're getting to invest money at lower prices, right? But where it becomes okay. more concerning is if you're at retirement or, or thinking about retirement, it can be more concerning. And really how we like to manage that risk is not changing things based on, on a day-to-day 
fluctuation. It is preparing a portion of the portfolio to be ready for events like this. So we, we want to have at least when it, how I look at it, like five years worth of savings that's going, you know, not necessarily just in cash, but in very safe investments that aren't going to fall when the stock market falls. And it may not earn as much, but you have it to live off of when the market is down. Okay. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, um, it's not going to fall during during times like now. You've seen bonds actually be up over the past couple of weeks. The other thing is it prevents you from needing to sell stocks while they're dropping. And that's where most people get into trouble is, is times like this, either panic selling and just going all into cash or selling their stocks after they've already fallen. Ultimately, what you want to do with your stocks is let those be able to sit there and grow for a long time. And if you're selling because of day-to-day movements, you're not giving those positions any time to grow back to where they were, hopefully grow above and beyond that in the future. So if you're an IR getting ready to do, I don't know, their last few months of cases, they're retiring June 30th, you know, that you would have pre-positioned them, in other words, to withstand something like this or to be able to get through it. I guess for from our perspective, it's sort of like maybe giving our patients pre-procedure antibiotics just to tie them through in case something happens. And then once they or the stock market recovers, you're, you're still okay. For sure. And I, th- I think a big part of our talk, and you, you could see it as maybe part of the... <laughs> The predisclosures that you give your patients as well. You know, we go through what does a recession look like, and we should be expecting significant market downturns to happen every six years or so on average. So we've been much okay. longer than that. Okay, since the last one, but I've been trying to communicate over this past year that that's unusual that we've been up for this long, and that we should expect there to be a big downturn, and we should be expecting those about every six years, which is which is more often than I think most of us think. Yeah, it's certainly not what I would have thought. And I think that's an excellent point that you raise, particularly for physicians and, you know, IRs, as you started to say, I mean, we're used to consenting patients for procedures. Here are the benefits. Here's the risks. Here's what to look out for. Here's what would happen if you don't do this. And I think presenting that to us, (laughs) to this population in the way that you just said is really useful because it helps uh, give us a, you know, a framework really to understand this process. There's a question we like to ask of all of our guests here, and I think this will be particularly interesting to hear your response. So if you had it within your power to change any one thing within healthcare today, what would it be? Okay. (laughs) That's a very uh, difficult and, and broad question. It is. <laughs> I, I would say, I think for me, it would be making healthcare more accessible to everyone in some way. I realize that's a okay. very broad, broad topic and, well, and something that's hard to do. But I think overall, when I look at it from like both the economic perspective, I mean, healthcare costs can continue to, to rise. Um, it, it creates problems on the middle class as far as like affordability. I would love it to, you know, it's not that I don't want physicians to be compensated by by any means. Uh, my, my wife is one. So, um, but oh, okay. I, I also, you know, I, I think it's important when we, when we look at a lot of the numbers of how many are either uninsured now or, or not able to receive access, especially during times when we're considering pandemics and some of the broader, mm-hmm. broader things that are, are going on out there and people that might be scared to go receive treatment because they're not sure of what, what the bills are going to look like. So um, I'm not exactly sure of the solution on that. I wish I I had one, but if I just had the carte blanche authority to kind of make that happen, I would love to do that. That was Clint Gossage, CFP, talking about financial planning for IRs. We thank Clint for his time, Varian for supporting this episode, and you for listening to The King's Wire. Our host is Dr. Warren Krakoff. 
Our editor is Dr. Jamin Shaw. Our production manager is Dr. Jason Fisher. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas on what topics you'd like to hear or anything else you'd like to tell us, drop us a line at irq.surweb.org.